Hello and welcome to a new season of Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past and asks, did they really happen the way we think they did? And what can we learn from them today? In this episode, we look at how a business founded in Walsall in the West Midlands in 1993 was sold to Canadian giant Brookfield for £4.1 billion in 2022. We speak to Richard Harpin, the founder of HomeServe and now its chairman. HomeServe offers emergency repairs for your home and insurance on plumbing and electrics. It's also the owner of Checkertrade.com, where you can find builders, plumbers and other tradespeople to do work on your property. Richard Harpin was born in Huddersfield, Yorkshire in 1964 and it's pretty clear from an early age that he was passionate about business. At primary school, he bred rabbits and sold them. He then charged people to look after these rabbits when they went on holiday. As a teenager, he set up a mail-order business that sold fishing flies and eventually earrings too. He called that business Hookers. Harpin then went on to study economics at the University of York before joining Procter & Gamble's marketing team. While there, he started buying property in Newcastle and renting rooms out to young professionals. This is where we pick up the story of HomeServe. It's a story that has highs and lows. So I did, stayed at Procter & Gamble for nearly four years, made sure I made it to um, brand manager. And the biggest issue in the property business was all of these tenants ringing up on a Friday evening saying the boiler's broken down, uh, we've got a block drain in the backyard or there's water pouring out of a radiator and we could not get a Geordie plumber for love nor money on a uh, Friday evening in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and thought, ah, that's the big business opportunity. So my business partner and I, Jeremy Middleton, set up A1 Fast Fix, an emergency plumbing business, A1 in order to get in the front of the yellow pages in plumbing and heating, and hired two directly employed plumbers. uh, The only issue was people only have a plumbing emergency every five years, and unless you overcharge for the individual job, you're not going to make money because of the high cost of yellow pages advertising, and we weren't prepared to do that. So very quickly, the business started losing £10,000 a month. We'd put all our life savings into this business, about £50,000 in total, and the money was running out. And I thought, isn't there a good link between a water utility? And this was back in the early 1990s. Most of the water companies were being privatised. They were looking for new income streams and thought, let's go around all the water companies and see whether we can get them to invest in our emergency plumbing business. When when it got to that stage, was it sort of a final Hail Mary to try and keep the business alive? Were you on the brink of shutting it down? Yeah, absolutely. The money had just about run out, and I really needed to make this business work. So we went around 15 water companies, And they all said no to our request for investment, with one small exception. And that was a little water company north of Birmingham called South Staffordshire Water. And they said, ah, actually, we've been looking at setting up a plumbing service. We'll invest half a million pounds for 52% of the business. So we thought, uh, fantastic. 
And uh, that's what happened. And that was in um, 1993. What was it about South Staffordshire, do you think, that made them say yes when everyone else said no? Was it purely coincidental that they'd been having a similar issue or, or were there people within that business at the time who had the foresight to see what you were doing? I think it was a bit of both. They were more entrepreneurial of the water companies. They're a smaller one. And because they'd already looked at the marketplace and were thinking about how they could do it, and this was the easy solution. Except, little did they know that all that happened was, and one of my biggest lessons in life was, I went from losing £10,000 a month to losing £50,000 a month because literally I just grew the previous model that didn't work. And the only consolation was it was now their money rather than ours. But the same thing happened a year later. The business got within £10,000 of running out of money. My friends and colleagues were saying, Richard, uh, your days as an entrepreneur are over. You better go back and work for Procter & Gamble. There were 23 people in the business all thinking we're about to be made redundant. The business is about to be closed down. And you know what? It's at those times you think, this is my final chance. I'm determined to be a successful entrepreneur and this is my last opportunity. I've got to find a way of making it work. And sometimes at those moments, you have a, a lucky break. And I came across a little water company in Surrey called Sutton Water, and they developed a plumbing insurance scheme. And I remember sitting in the Holiday Inn in Sutton in Surrey, interviewing some of those customers that had joined up to the scheme, saying, why did you join? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? We took out the bits they didn't like, like the annual inspection of the underground water pipe, and we added in drainage cover and internal plumbing emergency cover. Uh, but it was a copy and improvement of the model. Uh, we're taught at school, copying is bad. In business, it's actually really good. Copy and adapt and learn. And so we did that, sent out a thousand direct mail shots, branded to South Staff's water, plumbing cover for £50 a year. 38 people sent in their cheque for £50. I remember getting on my office table in front of the 23 staff that are about to be made redundant saying, yes, we made it. And we had. Really, it was then about signing up every other water company in the UK uh, on what we would call now an affinity marketing programme where we use their customer base, we use their brand name, but we signed up those customers. We had ownership of the customers, responsibility for running a great high-quality plumbing service, and uh, that was the magic model. Was that literally the, the key that unlocked the entire business? Was that moment and that initiative and everything else kind of fell into place after that? Exactly. That was the sort of we got the right business model. And then it was just about expanding it, signing up every other water company. All those water companies that had said no to investment said yes to an affinity partnership. And then the next step was thinking, how do I then grow the business next? And another one of my eight secrets, the eight things I know now that I wish somebody had told me right at the beginning of my entrepreneurial career was hire your replacement. And that's a really tough message for entrepreneurs. It took me eight years before I had the courage to say, I'm not that good at the day job of running the day-to-day -day business. I'm an entrepreneur. I want to focus on new opportunities, how we grow, how we can expand the business internationally. But the key bit was bringing in a guy called Jonathan King. He was working at Boots in Nottingham. 
a marketing guy. He came in as business development director and then within a year uh, made him MD of HomeServe UK when we were only a UK business. By 1997, HomeServe was rolling along nicely. But then it faced a big challenge, potentially an existential one. John Prescott, the new Deputy Prime Minister under the Labour government of Tony Blair, announced that water companies would have to repair leaks in people's water pipes free of charge. That was the service that HomeServe had been offering. The business had been going really well and growing quickly. And then this monumental problem that could have created sort of a, a terminal issue for HomeServe, where the biggest product that we're selling is cover for the underground water pipe in people's garden. And here is a deputy prime minister telling all these water companies that you need to cover that free of charge. But I'm a great believer in turning every problem into a bigger opportunity. And one of the water company um, customer service directors at Seven Trent Water said, over and above the free cover that we're going to offer, why don't you offer a gold standard service? And that's exactly what we did. So we wrote out to every water company customer saying, great news, your water company now offers a basic free repair service, but it was only covering a metre of pipe not the whole underground pipe in the garden if it needed replacing, wasn't covering the rising main under most people's sort of kitchen floor, and that may well be a concrete floor, and it wouldn't reinstate the driveway or the flower bed. So we developed a gold standard cover, which was an upgrade option over and above the free cover. And guess what? It became the fastest period of growth in the history of home serve in the early days. So out of every problem, there is a, an even bigger opportunity. When did you start thinking about expanding internationally? Because it's obviously one thing as a, as a business at HomeServe was able to do very successfully. And it's also one thing that marks the company out from other small and medium-sized businesses that they weren't able to expand internationally and turn themselves into a, into a larger business. It was once I'd hired Jonathan King as my UK MD, then that meant I could work on the business rather than in the business and started thinking about, I wonder whether this home serve model would work in a foreign country. And thought, let's try France. And when people asked me, why did you go for France first? I said, because uh, if we can make it work in France, we can make it work anywhere, because it's notoriously difficult to hire people in that country. The real reason was we were 30% owned by General Desaux. Uh, South Staffordshire Group was. And therefore, that was a logical point to say, we're running this service across the UK. Can we do it in France? General Desaux were the largest water company in uh, in France. And even though there was a shareholder connection, it still took about a year to get the deal in France. What do you think made you succeed overseas? Because reading through what you said before and looking back to the history of the company, it does seem that that point about humility was something that really stands out that when it was going wrong, you weren't afraid to either shut down the business or dramatically change your approach, the US being one such example. So would you say humility was one of the things that stood you out as being able to succeed overseas? Yeah, I think that's really important in all aspects of running the business. 
going and recruiting people, I'm looking for level five leaders that would be low ego, hardworking, humility, wanting to develop the business for the business's sake, not for their own career. But internationally, the key thing was, and the biggest thing I learned was, go global with locals. So you really need to hire a a great local person to make the business work in a foreign country. But equally, you need to stay true to your business model. Change it a bit, but don't change it too much. Otherwise, you'll find it doesn't work. Could you talk a little bit about the US? Because you obviously have succeeded there. You started in Miami and then changed course. So could you just talk a little bit about when you first started how quickly it took you to realize that you needed to change and then why you made the changes that you did. Originally going into America, and I dreamed as a, as a childhood entrepreneur that one day I'd go to this big country, America, take an idea from there and copy it and bring it back to the UK. And actually, the first time I went to the US in 2001, thought, wow, utility branded home assistance cover doesn't exist This is a really big opportunity in a market that's five times as big as the UK. But the issue was uh, we set up in Miami. Uh, Logical at the time, because it was trying to keep the costs down. The insurer that underwrites our home assistance policies was Matt Frey, and they were based in uh, Miami. So let's set up in their office. They were doing the claims handling at the time, so it was logical. Sent my best guy from the UK to run the US business. And it did develop. He did a really good job, but he wasn't American. So it was really important to um, have an American in there eventually to um, to run the business. And when you eventually decided to move the business, how much different was it when you were in, with, you were in the East Coast? Was it obvious to you the the quality of the people that you could get and how much more potential there was for it there yeah and this learning came from a big believer in having a coach or mentor i came across a guy called nigel morris he was british but he was americanized he lived in washington dc for 18 years he was a co-founder of capital one tracked him down and wrote to him and emailed him and then eventually called him and one night he answered his phone and gave me three hours of his time and he said, where are you? Where are you based in the, here in the US? And um, said in Miami. And he said, no, uh, if you want to hire serious Americans in your business, you need to be based between Boston and Washington, uh, East Coast. So we listened and moved to uh, Norwalk, Connecticut, an hour north of New York, and started hiring some great Americans into the business. And then secondly, uh, he said, who have you got running your US business I said, oh, a fantastic Brit. No, you uh, you need to put in American. And that's what we did. Uh, the business had grown from 2003 when we launched to 2011 from zero to $10 million profit and about a million members. But in the next 10 years, it grew to over $200 million of profit through having a wholly American team. Um, one of my f- future questions was going to be, who did you and how did you learn because you you talked about reading but you would seek people out you would seek other business leaders out and try and speak to them about their experiences i think that's really important because it's lonely as an entrepreneur and you should always have a um a mentor and go and find somebody that has been more successful than you 
So for me, that was easy. Lots of people are much more successful than me. And over the years, I've changed the mentors. I still keep in touch with Nigel Morris, but actually knocked on the door of Jeff Boyd, who was the um, chief executive and then chairman of uh, Booking.com. Steve Corfer, the co-founder of uh, TripAdvisor. Scott Forbes, the American chairman of uh, Rightmove here in the UK. I wanted to learn about online marketplaces because we acquired the Checker Trade business and really needed to uh, to learn about that. Looking at Checker Trade, uh, it's interesting looking back now. When you bought it, it was making less than a million pounds of profit, I think. And I think you paid something like 74 times earnings. What was it about the business at that point that you could see it had potential? This was about businesses need to keep evolving. And somebody called me in 2016 and said, have you seen this business in the US called Home Advisor? It's like an online platform for finding a local trade. Took a look at it and thought, that's really interesting. Uh, that could be the way to evolve the home serve model. And I wonder whether there's somebody like that in the UK. And I'm a great believer in doing market research. So commissioned a online survey monkey and saying, if you buy stuff online, then if you needed a home improvement or repair, where would you go online to find somebody? Assuming they'd all say, well, I go to Google and do a search that way. And actually, the number one place they went to was CheckerTrade. CheckerTrade, CheckerTrade.com. I won't sing the whole of the jingle, but uh, hopefully you're familiar with that and the TV advertising that's really, really successful. And I'd heard that jingle. Didn't really know how the business model worked. Found out where they were based that the original founder was still the chief exec and they were based in a place called Selsey right on the south coast. Uh, Went down to see Kevin Byrne, the um, uh, CEO founder, and I really liked the business. I said, Richard, I've had a great meeting, but I can't tell you much more other than uh, I'm selling my business next week to a big American media group. And I thought, oh dear, not sure I want that to happen. Maybe one day that could threaten the core home serve model. So I went back to him and uh, I hope there are not too many Americans listening because I said, uh, Kevin, uh, you shouldn't sell your, um, uh, your business to those horrible Americans. You should sell to a fellow British entrepreneur. And so somehow I managed to persuade him. But that was a I remember going to my board and saying, there's this business making only about a million pounds profit and we need to pay 74 million pounds for it. And sometimes you need to have the courage to do those things. The board had the courage to back me and check a trade for the year just finished made 17 million pounds of EBITDA profit. And there's a five-year plan that will get the profitability up to um, about 84 million pounds So it's taken a lot of work. It's taken longer than I expected. There's an exciting journey ahead, but this is going to be one of the uh, the biggest UK digital success stories. One of the biggest challenges that Richard Harpin faced at HomeServe was an investigation and a £30.6 million fine by the Financial Conduct Authority, the city regulator. That fine was announced in 2014 and at the time was the FCA's largest ever fine for an offence involving consumers. 
The FCA said that between 2005 and 2011, there have been serious, systemic and long-running failings at HomeServe involving the mis-selling of insurance and the mishandling of complaints. I think uh, all businesses will go through problem periods. And I blame myself because I was the founder and group chief exec of HomeServe and um, uh, didn't have the right person at the time running the UK. But I think the key thing is that you've really got to stay focused on the business, making sure that you're offering the right customer service, that you've got the right culture in a business. But if something goes wrong, then you step in and get it sorted out. And in those situations, I think if you can turn a crisis into an opportunity and come through it, then the management team that does that can be even more determined and go on to achieve uh, even greater business success. There's a, a famous principle about anybody that's been through a business or personal crisis It makes them more determined and they can go on and achieve great things. In 2022, nearly 30 years after we set up HomeServe, Richard Harpin and the board of the company agreed to sell it to Brookfield for £4.1 billion. It's clear talking to him today that he's still as passionate about business and being an entrepreneur as he was when he set up HomeServe. So why did he think now was the right time? to sell. Brookfield, who are the uh, the world's largest owners of infrastructure, came knocking on the door and said, HomeServe, we think you've got a great business. I found out uh, later on that they've been stalking HomeServe for three years, which um, I was quite pleased about. What does, what does stalking mean? Literally doing due diligence on you sort of behind the scenes? Yeah, following the business, but also um, the person responsible for the deal, uh, who I think is fantastic, Sikander Rashid at uh, Brookfield Infrastructure, uh, had gone and bought a couple of smaller businesses, uh, Boxed, a UK boiler installation business, Thermondo, a business doing something similar in Germany, and kept going back to um, his global boss, saying, I really now want to buy HomeServe. And he said, no, we need a bit more proof that the model is going to work. And then um, finally made the approach. Uh, It had leaked out to the stock market that they were in the early stages of making an offer for the business. Share price was up uh, 15%. One day that was sitting in uh, a board meeting in Checker Trade and found out that it was Brookfield who we'd had a couple of conversations about, could we do something around boiler finance, but acquiring us had never um, come up. But they're um, a great partner. They think long term. Their strategy is they want to own residential infrastructure. And the way to do that is to provide the financing for replacement heating systems. And what's really exciting is that we really need to focus on decarbonisation the carbon that's produced in heating all our homes is one of the uh, the biggest issues on global warming. The biggest single thing we can all do is replace our gas boilers with a heat pump. The issue is that they cost £12,000 compared with a like-for-like gas boiler replacement. It's £2,500. And even with the government subsidy of £5,000, 
there's still a £7,000 shortfall. So most households, particularly in the current climate, don't have that sort of money. So the Brookfield model is uh, we'll finance that. So we will provide a heat pump on a operating lease over 15 years. It's a worry-free monthly payment that comes with an annual service and breakdown cover. And the profitability that can come from providing that operating lease is more than the profit that can be made on the installation itself. So it's a win-win. And the government has a target of 600,000 heat pumps a year by 2028. Last year, 2022, there are only 30,000 installed. So there's a big gap. And home serving the next four or five years will be installing 100,000 of those 600,000 heat pumps, 17% of the total. We want to be the biggest installer in the UK and across Europe. And that's really, really exciting. And it will mean that HomeServe becomes the easy and affordable way to decarbonize your home. And that's the message that we want to get out there. And I'm a real believer that businesses that have a passion and a purpose can achieve a lot more. So this is very much not the sale of HomeServe. This is about the next chapter in our growth and the next five to seven years are going to be the most exciting period in the history of HomeSurf. What's your thought process throughout all this? Because this is the business you've built for nearly 30 years. It's had remarkable success. So how much of you was sad and how much of you was, this is an incredible vindication of everything we've built over the last 30 odd years. And also I quite welcome the opportunity to take a little bit of the risk off my shoulders and put them somewhere else. Yeah, this was mainly about saying HomeServe had been a public company for um, for 18 years. And that was a really good experience. And now would be a really good time to have HomeServe in private ownership. Uh, there are things that you can do under private equity where you can take a much longer term view rather than looking at profits growth over the next 6 to 12 to 18 months. This was the time where we could get Brookfield's money and resources. They have $750 billion of assets under management and could use their resources in order to invest in home serve in the short term to deliver long-term value. Now that he is the chairman and not the chief executive of HomeServe, Richard Harpin has some time to pursue his other interests. These include being an angel investor, and backing a series of startups. He's also passionate about growing the UK economy and helping small and medium sized businesses become larger businesses. He's written a booklet about this called Eight Secrets to Building a Billion Pound Business. It's based on his own experiences, and you've heard a few of the secrets already. They are copy and pivot, get an investor, find a coach or mentor bricks and clicks and paper, i.e. have a multi-channel approach. Hire your replacement. Go global with locals. Focus on evolution, not revolution. And have a not-to-do list, i.e. make sure you're not doing too much. It's because business is my passion 
And it's because I've been lucky enough to grow a really big business and make some money and learn a lot of things. And the eight things I know now, I wish somebody told me right back, back at the beginning. And if they had, maybe I could have grown HomeServe with the help of all of the MDs and chief execs in the business that are much more talented than me. Maybe we could have done it in 15 years instead of 30. And so I want to be able to go and help the forgotten medium. There are 110,000 medium-sized companies out there in the UK, and nobody really talks about them. Nobody helps them. And I want to take those eight things I know now, which are the eight secrets to building a billion-pound business, get those messages out there. And in one day a week of my freed-up time, I think I owe that as a legacy to say uh, we only have 7,700 large companies here in the UK. And if only we could double that, that would create enormous economic growth because those large companies employ 39% of the working population, which is 10.6 million people. They account for 53% of our total exports. So let's help 110,000 medium businesses, 7,700 of them to become large. So I really want to get those messages out there. Separate to that, I want to invest some of my own money into backing other entrepreneurs that are, I'm sure, much more talented than me, that are at an earlier stage in their journey. And I can help them with coaching and mentoring. And I can put some of my money into taking a minority shareholding and inspiring breakthrough in them in the way that I hope I've done that with the um, many of the people in uh, in HomeServe. Are there any other countries, you've obviously travelled around the world and, and seen this firsthand, that are better at this than the UK is? Why why is that middle been forgotten? Why aren't we as good at converting promising businesses into big businesses? I think there is no better place than here in the UK to start a business. And we talk a lot about SMEs and startups and there's a lot of support here, uh, relatively low tax rate, not too much red tape. But then when a business gets to sort of employing 20 or 30 people, is categorized as medium size, turning over five or 10 million pounds, they get forgotten about. So we're not good at scale-ups. If you look at America and China, of the sort of 1,200 unicorn businesses, those businesses that have made it to a, a billion pounds or a billion dollars of value where America and China are well ahead of us. Is there something specific about the US and China that means that they're better at this? I think they do give more help to medium-sized businesses. So uh, there are some membership organizations that provide peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. One of the things I'm looking at is taking Growth Partner, which is my private investment business, and adding Connect, uh, which is a membership club that finds medium-sized business entrepreneurs and says, uh, we can help you. We'll provide peer-to-peer -peer coaching and mentoring. We will help you to find finance, ideally equity investment, to uh, help your business to grow, enable you to take more risk, and to become a large company. Being an entrepreneur, do you, you always wanted to be an entrepreneur, clearly. You, you did it from a very early age. Do you think that is essential or can you learn to be an entrepreneur? Where I've done a st straw poll from going out and doing a business talk, 
and I've got an audience of entrepreneurs and say, uh, I put my hand up and say, I was born an entrepreneur, always wanted to be one from a very early age. Uh, actually, it split 50-50. So half always wanted to be, but the other half fell into it and can be equally successful. It's really interesting when talking to Richard Harpin and looking at the HomeServe story, how aspects of the success of this company seem counterintuitive. That's reflected in Richard Harpin's Eight Secrets to Success. Take copy and pivot, for example, or finding your own replacement. Also, following a not-to-do list will seem like an alien concept to many entrepreneurs and business leaders who have so much on their plate and are trying everything they can to build their business. The problem with entrepreneurs like me is we're foxes. We're always out there looking for the next opportunity and we need to be hedgehogs, moving more slowly, meticulously. And when somebody comes along and says, oh, do this thing, we put our prickles up and say, no, we're focused and committed to just delivering our strategy. So there's lots of things. And if I look back over 30 years of HomeServe, then uh, we got distracted, tried to do too much. Uh, we got into working for home insurers, doing fire and flood damage and redecoration. Uh, that's a low margin activity. So we got into that and then we got out of that. At one point, we were extending home assistance and we were offering furniture warranties. And that was low margin and working with furniture retailers. And uh, we didn't have a direct relationship and ownership of the customers. So stay focused is my message. There's a book out there called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And one of my two sons, Tom, who's um, just finished politics, philosophy and economics at Leeds University, was on his reading list. And he said, Dad, you've got to read this book. I said, Tom, you're having a laugh. The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Surely mean the Disciplined Pursuit of More. And he said, Dad, just read the book. And the messages are simple. Stay very focused and do less, much better. I want to ask you a little bit about the challenges that HomeServe has faced over the years. You, you picked out there that the hardest one of those lessons is, is hiring the right people. And I think you've said before that the two biggest mistakes you, you made were hiring the wrong person. So... Could you just talk about that a little bit? When did you realise it was a mistake and how do you, why, why did you make the mistake? When you look back, do you think now I didn't do something there that I should have done? And how do you go about correcting it? Yeah, the biggest learning is first who, then what. And if I look back over 30 years, then where you've got a business unit that did really well, that was because there was a great leader. And some of the biggest mistakes I've made is hiring the wrong leaders. I think over time, you get better and better. You look at culturally hiring the right people, asking the right questions, being a better judge of character. And if you get it wrong, and unless you're making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. But if you get it wrong, you've got to have the courage to say there's a mismatch here and get rid of that person early on. And whether that's a home serve business, I've got a guy called Ross Clemo that's running Home Serve Amir now as a chief exec. He's doing a fantastic job. Uh, one of the few people that's worked for me in his first year where I rated him as outstanding. 
and Home Server Mirror, I'm confident, is going to have a, an exciting future. And that's because Ross is great and he's got a great team reporting into him. But it even comes down to my village pub, which I bought uh, against a lot of advice. But you don't want to live in a small village in Yorkshire and find the pub is closed. And I went through a succession of management teams until I found the right entrepreneurial couple that had got a great experience of running two very successful previous establishments and said, come and have half my business and run it for me. And that was what turned it into uh, one of the best pub hotel restaurants in uh, in the country, according to the uh, Sunday Times top 100 list. Are you tended to open more pubs now that you've, you've got one successfully running and you've found a management team who can do it? Absolutely not. I'm <laughs> really happy to have uh, just one. I guess the closest thing I've got to that is a business called Keelham Farm Shop based in Skipton. So again, a northern business and brought in a great couple as partners to uh, run that. They're very experienced. And what we're doing there is turning it into the, the best food hall anywhere outside of London. So this is now Keelham Food Hall. And uh, it's going to rival Selfridge's Food Hall or Harrods Food Hall. And I think that's a good example of levelling up in the north, having a business that we can be really proud of and hopefully opening more of those. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to read bonus content from this episode and get business news and analysis throughout the week, you can sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.